Hello, and welcome to Teacher Tales, a podcast from the spirit of teaching. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I invite you to join me and my guests as we get curious, explore, discover, and learn more about what is really at the heart of teaching. In each episode, we will hear the story of a teacher, what called them to teach, what are their greatest joys and challenges in teaching, what inspires them, and what are their hopes, dreams, and vision for the education of children. We will learn more about the greatest lessons they have taught and also the greatest lessons they have learned. No checklists, no standards, no reports, no paperwork, and no data. Just stories from their hearts to our hearts on a journey to celebrate what really matters in the true spirit of teaching. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Teacher Tales. I am so happy that you're here. And I have a special guest today who has a great deal of experience and a wide variety of things in teaching and education. And so we're going to gather up a bunch of new insights to the field of education and we may even talk about data in this one, which, you know, we that's a, one of our favorite topics here um, at Teacher Tales. So um, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thank you, Linda. It's great to be with you today. And my name's Jana Miller. And currently I am the CEO and founder of REAL, which stands for Re-Energizing Educators and Leaders. And so I'm doing consulting work um, with school districts and, you know, just re-energizing our teachers and principals and everyone who's involved in this really important and tough work. And it sure has been tough lately, hasn't it? It sure has. <laughs> so how did you, how did you start out um, with the field of education, and everything? Because now you're a consultant and you've had a great deal of experience that has given you lessons that now you're sharing with, uh, with other teachers and re-energizing them um, and developing leadership skills for them. So how'd you start out? What was your, what drew you into teaching? Well, you know, um, as they say, never say never, right? So I was kind of a rebellious little preacher's kid and my mother was a teacher. And so I said, I will never be a teacher. And she said, oh, really? And I said, yes, I'm not going to be bossing everybody around. And it, as it happened, I would always be a student in my mom's school. And I thought that it was very unfair that anything I did, if I was naughty, that my mom got to know immediately. And so I told her that was unfair. I was never going to be a teacher. So never say never, right? So I was going to be an attorney, went to college. And my mother said, you will be very good at that because you're very good at arguing with people. <laughs> and so anyway, needless to say, when I was in college, I had a couple of jobs to help me get through school. And one of the jobs is I signed on to be a paraprofessional. We were just called teacher's aides back in the day. Um, but I worked with kids in a self-contained special education class and for like in the afternoons because I went to school in the mornings. And 
So I worked with a little boy who had continual seizures and I worked with him for a semester and I was sold. I was like, oh, now I'm gonna have to tell my mother that I really like teaching, you know? So um, I did that, changed my major, went into elementary education and uh, had a great experience. I actually ended up in a college in, I started out in New Mexico State University, but I ended up in a private school in Oklahoma City. And at that school, our student teaching experience was you had to do upper elementary and lower elementary. And so I felt like I had got really good experience um, because you know you always think you know exactly what you wanna teach. And then you find out you love teaching all levels. And so um, I did a part of my student teaching with little bitty kids. And then I did part of it with sixth and seventh graders. And so had a really good experience with that. Hired on in Oklahoma City Public Schools. I taught second grade. And then I was low man on the totem pole, went to third, then they moved me to fourth and so on. And then I had the opportunity of moving to Phoenix, Arizona. And when I came to Phoenix, Arizona, um, I signed on as a self-contained special education teacher. And I was teaching kids um, that had lots of behavior problems. And I thought, boy, this is gonna be really hard. I don't know if I'm cut out for doing this. And I loved it, did that for five years and then moved into regular education. Um, little side note, one little gal, Amber is her name and she was in my self-contained um, behavior class and she still keeps up with me to this day. And she calls me every year on Mother's Day and um, I kind of was like her surrogate mother. Her mother was in prison and her dad later passed. And so I've stayed with her over the past 30 years and we are still very close and very connected. She calls me mom. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very, I'm very proud of that. Well, back to never say never, right? <laughs> when I was a teacher, I loved it so much. I said, I will never be a principal. And wouldn't you know, my principal was encouraging me, said, you have great leadership qualities. You ought, to, you ought to go back to school and think about becoming a principal. I could help you. So needless to say, I became an assistant principal in a K-8 school. And my principal said, you know, you're ready for this. You need to be a principal. And so then I had the opportunity of in Cave Creek, Arizona, which is North Phoenix, I had the opportunity of opening a brand new elementary school. So I was the planning principal. And then that's where my heart remains today. Um, I said being a principal is the hardest job I ever had. And it's the most rewarding because I got to work with all aspects of the entire school. So I was principal for nine years and then uh, the district office was pursuing me to come and help out with the teaching and learning department so that I could help out with all of the schools uh, with their teaching and learning. And so I became assistant superintendent and did that for 13 years. So meanwhile, during that time, I also um, was able to teach at the college level. I taught as adjunct professor at ASU and Argosy University. And so I just love teaching. That it, there's no um, 
better reward, I don't think, in this life than when you can really change a life. And I just think good teaching is good teaching. I use some of the same strategies I used with my ED kids that I've used with adult learners and that I've used with middle school students. And so, you know, I just love finding what is the next thing that we can do to help our kids because we can't stay stagnant. We have to continually, continually be learners ourselves. Mm -hmm. I love the, the journey that you've had because it is such a a little bit of a pushback or slap in the face to the old cliche of those who can do and those who can't teach because <sighs> you, you have done everything and you have adapted and you've, you know, brought your leadership forward in every step of that journey. Um, and so congratulations and thank you for all that you've done for, for in service to children and education. So um, you have, oh, thank you. You have really um, stuck with it and made a big difference. And um, hi, Amber, if she's listening, you've kept in touch all these years. And I think that's at the heart of teaching. Um, mm -hmm. What I've heard from teachers and what I know for myself is that relationship and making a difference in a child's life. Um, that's, you know, that's everything. And now you're doing it for teachers. Um, and you did it as an assistant superintendent. So, so what a great career. Um, so what have you, what are the biggest lessons you've learned along the way, um, being in these different positions? Um, well, the one thing I, you know, I've ha had the opportunity of working in inner city schools and suburban schools and some that are kind of in between. And recently I have been working with some schools on the reservation. And I, I think the common theme that I see throughout lessons learned is that no matter the demographic, all parents want the same thing for their kids. They want their kids to have a better life than they had. And I always have felt like when parents drop their kids off, at our schools, they, yeah, they want them to learn something, but the most important thing when they drop their kids off and so they can leave and go to work or go about their daily duties is they want to know that their children are safe and happy. And when they pick them up at the end of the day, they want to see a smile on their face. And so I think it's the same way with adult learners and I think there's so much we still have to learn about how the brain works. And if we do not provide a safe, happy learning environment for children, for adults, for everyone, the brain only has a certain capacity to learn and to improve and to grow. And so that, you know, I try to keep that in the back of my mind always is before I'm gonna teach a ton of standards, a ton of content, I wanna make sure that students feel safe. And I don't mean, just mean there's a fence around the school building or the classroom door is locked, but they feel safe uh, to be themselves and um, to come to school and learn no matter what their home environment is like. And I want them to be happy. And so that's probably the biggest lesson, the biggest lesson I've learned. The next lesson is 
every community is also a little different. And so you have to adapt to those communities. And um, I learned when I was principal in North Scottsdale area, our students came with a lot of resources and rich vocabulary and lots of experiences. And so I, we had high test scores and it wasn't because of me. It, and I wanted to know what is the next thing for these students? And so that's when I learned about um, teaching kids a second language. And I actually, a parent approached me and said, have you ever heard of teaching little bitty kids another language? And I said, no. And she said, would you go to Utah with me and just check out the schools there and see what they're doing with the kids? And so I did. We went, took a couple of teachers and we went through these schools and I was watching English speakers speak Russian and English speakers speak Italian. And I thought, wow, every student should have this, not just kids in my community, but for sure the kids in the school under my charge are gonna get this opportunity. So we came back, I was giddy about it. And we started a Spanish immersion program in 2003. And I just watched a community that was not diverse at all really become more diverse because of the teaching staff, because of the families that wanted to bring their children to our school. And our students learned a second language and they became eager to learn about other people. Um, so that second lesson is really listening to your the community and understanding what their needs are. The caveat to that is um, my husband was in um, a different type of community and he said this is so good for kids. He started the Spanish immersion in his school and actually they were able to bring in their EL learners and on a waiver. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a two-sided thing with your question. Like some things are, you find out, you think are good for some communities and then you find out it's great for all kids and for all learners. And that's what I think learning a second language is. It's good for all children. And I think our public schools in America we have got to make the shift um, away from we're going to teach second languages starting in high school and in college, and that we're going to start with young children. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's why, I mean, we just, um, you're doing a conference presentation and it's, um, it's about empathy and mm -hmm. developing, um, you know, having kids learn empathy and how do you bring it to the classroom? And it sounds like that's one of the lessons you've learned over the years is that these programs um, have a big connection to building empathy and building community through empathy. Um, and I think it would be really great if all teachers had that insight and a, a opportunity maybe to make those connections um, that it's good for all kids um, to learn another language, to make those connections between, you know, how some kids do things and how some kids say things and how we say them or we do them. And it's not to be rejected or it's weird or whatever. It's, um, it's our humanity. You know, it's the connection we have to humanity. And going back right. to what you were saying earlier too, about being safe. I mean, that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's all human beings. They just want to be safe. And I can imagine that you observing 
the pandemic unfold and having that experience and that insight uh, and that belief that all kids want to be safe um, probably changes your perspective on or gives you greater insight anyways to the pandemic. Um, I think that's why a lot of behavior issues have come up. That's why learning is not happening as quickly. Like what you said, the brain doesn't learn as quickly and it doesn't retain things in stressful situations. And that's definitely the pandemic. So um, have you noticed any other things this year um, with the pandemic as far as um, from the lessons you've learned about um, safety and feeling part of a community and, and belonging? Yes, I, as far as um, the safety and belonging piece, you know, we all have strengths in certain areas and we all have certain resources. And one thing I've noticed is that, you know, some of our students were really adept in using technology and, you know, scheduling their time. And there are many students who, no matter the demographic, that life at home is not that organized or the resources are not the same. And so the one thing we really had had to learn from an empathy standpoint is some students who don't show up online to class, it's probably not their fault. It's probably because they may not even be at home at that time. Parents may have had to take them to work. And so I, I think we learn about empathy from that standpoint um, that many times if we don't become relational with our students and understand where they are at that moment in time, that we make assumptions, and you and I have talked about this before, we make assumptions about someone's behavior. So whether or not they're attending class or whether or not you know, they, are, they have their video muted. And so some of the check-in procedures and just checking in with kids and really getting relational and finding out where they stand at the current moment and also where the teacher stands um, in terms of their emotional state, because I know during the pandemic, so many teachers were so stressed out and it wasn't because they want, they didn't know their content. It wasn't because they didn't know their standards or because they didn't understand classroom management. It's that they are used to having their students in their classroom and feeling the environment and you know, really getting into it, you can watch the body language. And so I think we've just learned a lot about stepping into somebody else's shoes and taking a step back and seeing where everybody is emotionally before we start trying to plow through the standards. One of my favorite teachers, first grade teacher, told me during the pandemic that every, all the kids were back to school and she had taken her students down to the lunchroom and she was in her classroom eating her lunch and there was a little sidelight window by her door and she could see a little boy from her classroom peeking in. And so she went over to the door and she greeted him and she said, hi, how can I help you, honey? And he said, I just wanted to see your pretty face. 
And she said, oh, and she made the connection that this little boy, because everybody wore masks, he had never seen his teacher's face. And so I, I just think, I guess the lesson is we all have to step back, slow down a little bit, and we can make progress forward in terms of learning even faster if we slow down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you've been going in and doing some consulting work with schools on reservations. What are you finding there um, that may be different or the same of what uh, is going on in schools that are not on reservations? Because that's another aspect of education that even I, as a teacher, I haven't experienced that. And so it's a, like you were saying at the very beginning, you have to understand the community and the context, and it's different from place to place. It's not a one size fits all approach to, to the teaching and learning and meeting those needs. So. Yes, um, interesting question. I, I think one feeling one thing that really stuck out to me is I think people, at least the people that I was meeting with um, on the reservation, have this feeling about how city people view them. And it's just another indication of not knowing people. And I think that, I don't know, I thought just because I've lived, uh, uh, on and near the Navajo reservation, I kind of thought I knew about the Navajos and I really didn't. And when I got there into their community and started talking with them, it's the same thing. They want their kids to have a better life. Um, they want the world to respect their culture. And it was very interesting because we were working on their vision and what their mission is. And um, they, as we were talking through it, they said, we want everyone to respect our culture. And then someone else, uh, someone from the Navajo Nation said, uh, but we have a lot of people who here that are not from the Navajo Nation. Mm -hmm. And is that loud? It's, it's fine, it's good. Okay. So, and we have a lot of people um, that come to us from other cities, other states, and are not Navajo. And they said, and we should respect their culture as well. And so when we were talking about their vision, they wanted in there that we respect all cultures and all people. And I love that. I thought, you know, some people could think that on the reservation, you know, it, it's behind the time. Some people will say it's like 10 years behind, you know, because little children are herding sheep and things like that. It's not. They, they just want their culture respected. They have iPhones, you know, they have computers, they have Wi-Fi, and they just, they want to keep their culture alive, but also they want to have their children to have a better life than they have. And that may look different than what we want, but I think it just comes back down to the human that we all want that for our children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and, and 
I think right now with testing, it's the testing season, at least here in Florida, and I think around the country, and parents are kind of freaking out and going off on teachers, at least that's what I'm seeing on social media. And, you know, I think we need to give each other grace, the teachers to the parents and the parents to the teachers, because the teachers have been doing the best they can all year with the pandemic and with, Mm -hmm. you know, their own personal challenges, as well as the challenges of, you know, for an elementary school classroom, 25 kids. And sometimes, you know, there are two different families for each kid to have to manage and, and, you know, navigate. But then for a high school teacher, 200 kids, you know, and their families and stuff, that's, that's, superhuman requirement that other you know professions don't have to deal with and then the parents just want what's best for their children and if they think that their child is not going to do well on that test that I mean there's all kinds of things that come up that they feel that maybe it's a reflection on them that they're a failure as a parent or Mm -hmm. that it's going to label their child or hold their child back in the future you know, stigmatize them, traumatize them, whatever it is. And that's a lot of emotions to be, to be juggling for sure. So you, what you do with vision and, you know, you use data and everything to look at um, like managing behaviors or expectations. You want to explain a little bit what you're doing um, with, with your consulting business and also some of the other work that you're doing now that you're not, you know, a principal in or an associate superintendent. Yes. So it's interesting when that's interesting what you're saying about how on social media there it's indicative of people going off on teachers. And I think whenever we see a decrease in test scores, an increase in behaviors, whatever it is that we want to focus on teachers and the teachers aren't whatever, putting up their objectives. The teachers aren't doing lesson plans. Teachers aren't doing this, that, and the other. And I really feel that we really have to look at leadership. And so my, I believe that 98% of our teachers go to work every day to help. They, they're passionate about helping children in any profession. A hundred percent of the people or any jobs are not there to do a great job, but the majority of people, and I've always said 98, 99% of teachers walk in the door every day saying, I want to help these kids. I love these kids. And so when I see problems in a school or in a school district, I, to tell you the truth, I initially, I don't really want to look at the test scores. I want to look, I want to see the whole school and how it operates. So I like to spend two or three days observing. And I like for teachers to know that I'm not an evaluator. I have no evaluation status. And I like to go and just see how the entire school operates because we say that in order for a classroom to be successful, it has to be safe and orderly. We have to have classroom management. We have to have a plan. We have to be prepared. 
And so I want to see if from a district standpoint and from a leadership standpoint at the school, is all of that being modeled to teachers? And I, teachers have all gone to teacher school and have learned how to teach. And the majority of us, I believe, have been in with great supervising teachers. And we've, we have a passion already. We want to do this job. And so I really like to go in and look at the whole school. And I like to talk to the leadership individually. I like to talk with teachers. I talk with students. I, so this is all qualitative data that I get. And um, I talk with the support staff and, you know, which includes bus drivers, cafeteria support. Um, I like to see what happens at the beginning of a school day. What happens at lunchtime? What happens at the end of a school day? What's happening in classrooms? And with all of that data, I like to um, just give uh, re my results to the school district or to the school and share factual things. I try not to put a judgment on it because every school district and every community is a little bit different, but I present to them all of the facts. And then I do make recommendations. And I say, these are the things you're gonna to have to decide from a leadership standpoint, are you willing to support from the top? And so I'll just give you an example as it relates to teaching. So if administration says that we require objectives to be posted or we expect lesson plans to be created, then the leadership has to expect everyone to do that. And what I mean, and why I say that is because there are so many people that comply with that. You and me, if our principal leader tells us you need to turn in lesson plans every Friday, we turn them in. And if we, there are our neighbors who never turn in their lesson plans, the, those that are compliant think, why do I not have, why am I doing that? And why don't they care about that? And so I, I really like to work with leaders and talk about our expectations because I think things filter down and our teachers are required to have expectations in the classroom, hold students accountable for those expectations. And I feel like that needs to start from the top. And so that's my approach is not being top down, but finding out what's really going on in the school, the organization, and then find out what is leadership really willing to do, model, how are they gonna support? Um, because if it doesn't start there and there's, they're saying one thing and doing another, then we can't have any expectation for anyone else. I'll give you an example. And this is, um, so I, when we have fire drills and things like that, I had once heard uh, someone in our district office say, you know, the teachers are, whenever there's a fire drill, that's serious. And the teachers are taking out their coffee with them when they're going out for a fire drill. And so we need to tell all the teachers, you can't take your coffee with you when we're on a fire drill. 
And so I thought, well, I want to see what happens. So I invited some of the district leaders to go watch some fire drills. And guess what? Some of the folks from the district office took their Starbucks with them to go <laughs> watch the fire drill. And so to my point, I just, I believe there's so much about modeling, you know, everyone's watching the leader and in our classroom, the kids are watching every move we make. And so the expectations have to go across the board. So back to your question about what do the data that I look at is a lot of observable data. And um, I want to see our, our leaders, do they tell people what they expect from them? Or do they expect them just to dream it up? Do they tell them what's expected? And then do they follow up with the expectations? And those that are following the expectations and doing such a fantastic job, is someone saying something and saying, thank you? We really appreciate the fact that you're doing X, Y, and Z for our students. And then those that aren't, are we having a private conversation with them and telling them, I will also expect this from you? And I think if we do some of those simple things and teachers feel support, I don't think we have to go in and tell teachers every move to make. I, I think teachers know what to do and they wanna be supported. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my research on my dissertation was, I, when I was a principal, I wanted to have effective professional development for my teachers. And I, anytime I did a group professional development, I would have a couple that would say at the end, this was really good, but it really doesn't apply to my content or my grade level. And that really bothered me. I never wanted to waste their time. So my study was about, I wanted to find out from principals all over Arizona, uh, who are your most effective teachers? And so I would get one or two from a school and I interviewed, I think 30 teachers from around the state and their principals identified them as the most effective teachers in their schools. And so I went and I interviewed them and I said, what has your principal done to help you become so effective? And it's an overwhelming nothing. They could, they, none of them could pinpoint anything, but there was one general theme that they would all go back to. Well, you know, my principal is very supportive. Um, you know, when my grandfather passed away and I had to take days on those blackout days, uh, my principal was super supportive. Well, I mean, realistically, that has nothing to do with the act of teaching, right? And another would say, you know, I, I don't know what they did. Oh, but you know what? I decided I was gonna teach writing a different way. And so I wanted to go to this conference and it was gonna cost a little bit of extra money. And I asked the, my principal, you think there's any way I could be supported on this? And she said, absolutely. And so the underlying theme was, I really need to be supported and support that word is a really broad general term and everybody needed to be supported in a different way, which meant their leaders, their principals had to get to know them as people. And once they got to know them as people and understood them, they would know how to support them. 
So that's what I really try to work with leadership on. You know, it's a big job. We all have very big jobs and we're all super busy. But some of these things are filter right to what we expect to be going on in our classrooms. And so I in my consulting, I really like and cherish working with leaders because they whatever they're saying has to be what they're doing or it, it just doesn't work. So I spend a lot of time with the leaders and the schools and um, everybody wants to do a good job, but I, I'm not sure everybody knows exactly how and they want to do better. So I've had a lot of joy in that. Um, you know, even setting vision statements and thing, things like that has been a tough task for some leaders. And I found out that they too need support and need help. And I, I love doing that. I just feel like it's another version of my teaching. Mm -hmm. I think you have made so many great points and it just resonates so much for me in my career and my experiences and also a lot of my, my daughter and my colleagues that are very dear friends still, that that's a lot of what in their hearts caused some pain and suffering was when there was inequity, when there was favoritism, um, when administration was not supportive, uh, didn't reach out to find out how they're doing, um, or just a little note um, of, oh, I, you know, hear that your grandmother passed away recently. I'm so sorry to hear that. It doesn't mean that you have to make a big production out of it, but just acknowledging that. And being a language teacher, when you talk about culture and you were talking about the school culture and the community and how it's different from school to school and community to community, that really is what it boils down to is the school culture. As a district supervisor, when I would go into different schools, um, I was shocked at the different cultures at the different schools and culture in language terms is products, practices, and perspectives. And so asking, what is your vision? What do you expect or hope that the culture of this school is gonna be? Are we going to be kind to everyone? Are we going to be equal? You know, is there going to be um, uh, equal treatment of everyone? And um, those values that everybody agrees upon. Um, rules, we were talking earlier about rules and, mm -hmm. and, and asking the staff, what do you think is really important for the school and for our school culture? Because in certain schools, you know, certain rules are not gonna apply and the teachers are not gonna, like having jeans on Friday. For some school cultures, that's everything. But for other school cultures, they're like, no, I don't need to wear jeans on Friday. Let me just, you know, leave on time on Friday, you know, <laughs> or I don't know. Totally. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, and that goes such a long way um, to building a, a positive environment that then can be productive and can be um, achieving. And yeah, so... Um, you know, that's funny what you say about the notes. Um, funny story. So I go to a local uh, supermarket. It's called AJ's here in Arizona. And 
it's, um, I go there for their iced tea. And so I was standing there waiting on my iced tea and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and it was a teacher that had been at my school years ago. And she said, oh, hi, it's Kathy. And I was like, well, I know who you are. And I, I said, I hired you, you know? And she said, oh, I know. And you gave me all my confidence back and everything. And so she said, she's retired. And she said, I wanna take you to lunch. And I said, well, okay. And so funny thing is I always said in the back of my head when I was a principal, I can't be friends with some teachers and not others. Like you were talking about consistency. And there were some teachers that I really liked. And I thought my husband and I could hang out with her and her husband. But as long as I was the supervisor, I couldn't, I just said, I can't do that. And that's not fair and equitable and what I'm modeling. And so I would jokingly tell everyone, you know what, we can be friends when I retire. And she tapped, when she tapped me on the shoulder, I'm getting my IST and she said, well, you know, I'm retired now, Jana. And so we can be friends. And I said, <laughs> okay, well, let's meet for lunch. So we did. And she told me that she was going through all of her teaching stuff and she found a folder and I didn't even know, remember this, but she said, I found over 40 notes that you wrote to me during the nine years that I worked at, at the school. And she said, and I have all of those notes. And so, you know, it's the little things, you know, teachers don't require a lot. They need to be supported, encouraged. And it's those little things and I do, um, I go and judge schools for A-plus schools of excellence in Arizona. And one of our practices is we always leave an A-plus note. And we just say, thank you for allowing us to visit your classroom today and be in your school. Good luck, you know, with the year. And those notes, I can go back because they have to re-up in four years. I can go back to those schools and those notes are still in their classrooms. They're hanging up on a wall behind their desk. And I just, that's another thing I like to impress upon our leaders is our teachers don't need a lot, but they need recognition and they need to, to get an attaboy once in a while and thank you and, and show that they're appreciated. And I think that's a human need, you mm -hmm. know? And Teaching is, can be a very lonely job. You were talking about earlier with teachers that have 200 students or, you know, having a room full of kindergartners all day long could be a very lonely job when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I think we, you know, we've gotten so much into the, it's all about the standards. It's all about the test. And if we can love people and support them and meet them where they are, they'll do well on the tests. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. I agree wholeheartedly. And that's, you know, the spirit of teaching that to me is what we need to get back to is, is just loving and supporting each other, you know, as human beings on this life journey that is about learning every step of the way. It doesn't have to be during you know, the eight hours you're at school in a classroom, it's inside the classroom, it's outside the classroom, it's when you're two years old, it's when you're 102 years old, you're still learning things. And 
Um, exactly. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's easier. Sometimes we can carry someone else when they're struggling. And sometimes we need to be carried when we're struggling. And that's back to that empathy. Um, and if more leaders and um, administrators in schools would see that, but then like you were saying, trickle down to the teacher in the classroom with the kids uh-huh. um, and with the parents and having that you know, rep- rep- reciprocal sort of um, you know, attitude, it would just right. make things go so much better. And, yes. Uh, yes. So, and well, with teacher know, appreciation a- coming up, I hope everybody's getting um, <laughs> that they don't have to go buy something from the store for the teacher. Just write a little note to the teacher and tell exactly. them how much you appreciate what they've been doing for your child. It means the world to them. It really yes. does. Well, you know, I'm a big Dr. Seuss fan. And so, and everybody that's worked with me knows it. I have more Dr. Seuss paraphernalia than you can imagine. And I don't know if you've ever read um, Yertle the Turtle, but it's all about, to me, it's all about leadership. You can't get up there on your perch on the top of of the stack because there's a little guy down there, the little turtle named Mac. And so I have this Yertle and I actually read that, you know, when I was teaching or when I was assistant principal in a middle school, um, a teacher came or somebody, I don't know, I think it was um, somebody in the front office, they came by and they said, you know what, these kids aren't going to like all your Dr. Seuss stuff because they're older. And I said, oh, really? I said, no, I read to all kids. It doesn't matter what age they are, even if they're adult kids. And um, so then the challenge was on. I was like, oh, I'm reading to the eighth graders today. But I even read to administrators and I read them, Yertle the Turtle. Uh, and uh, we talk about it's lonely at the top, uh, but what an influence you have. And like, there are so many great people in the organization that can really make that thing thrive um, if they're supported, you know? And like you were saying, just a little note. They don't need a big bunch of flowers or that they're not after that actually. They just want to be supported and to be recognized for the great work that teachers are doing in our schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the pandemic, I think that's something that I've heard the most from teachers is that they don't feel supported. They uh-huh. feel like they're just like a fish out of water, floundering, trying to do the best that they can um, and that they don't feel supported and understood. And those are here again, human needs. I need to be seen and heard, you know, that's that's it (laughs) exactly yeah so well this has been great this is just I hope it is just lifts everyone up and like I said everyone goes and writes a note um, to a teacher and um, lets them know or keeps in touch like Amber for 30 years and uh, and colleagues having lunch that's those are all the relationships and the connections that make it make it all work so you ready for the um, rapid fire round where you just finish the sentence with a thought? Okay. All right. So teaching is? Everything. This makes the world go round. It's everything. It's a glue that holds the society together, I've always said. My greatest hope for the profession is? So it may sound corny, but that teachers get paid more there'd be a lot that would join that that uh, caravan with you campaigning <laughs> they need more oh yeah 
I would love to see um, at our state level if they would have a structure like whatever, 50, 60, 70,000, 60, 70, 80,000, that there weren't all these little increments and that teachers there, you know, it meant something to somebody at the state. And they said, we're going to pay teachers because this is a profession. That would be my hope. Mm -hmm. I just read an article recently about a CEO that took a cut in pay so that all of his employees could be paid a starting salary of $70,000. And the companies were like, you're crazy. Your company's going to go out of business. It's like, I don't know, the business is booming. booming. Yes. I, I don't know what the numbers were on it, but it's booming and it's more successful than ever because everybody's supported and everybody is valued and everybody's now productive and doing their job very well so that's yeah. right so that's a connection there with yeah they should be paid uh -huh. my, my greatest hope for all children is when you think about all is truly and it sounds cliche but that they have equal access to higher education and or good jobs because I think that's, we're preparing them to be lifelong learners. So I hope that all kids, no matter where they are or what's going on in their life, that they have an opportunity if they want to have higher education and or get really good jobs. I think it's our job to prepare kids for, to be ready for the workforce. And that's why I'm so sold out on second language learning. It gives them another feather in their cap. It sure does. It sure does. It's the resume differentiator. That's right. <laughs> it is. Plus, it just, I don't know, opens their eyes and their hearts. I hear back from a lot of my students that they, they travel a lot. They love traveling and they, it's made them see the world differently and enjoy it more deeply and profoundly. So, because it's that human thing going on. Uh -huh. Yeah. Connection to humanity. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. Like I said, I think it's going to be very inspiring for, for teachers and anybody else who's listening too, because um, those insights will touch their hearts and maybe they'll think to write a little note to a teacher that's made an impact on their life. So. Exactly. Well, thank you for having me. And I'll leave you with a Dr. Seuss quote that's my favorite. And it is, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. I'm not going to top that one. So thank <laughs> you. You're welcome. Thank you, Linda. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Hello again, everyone. This is your host, Linda Markley. And I'd like to invite you to nominate a teacher to be a guest on the podcast and to share their story. All you have to do is go to www.spiritofteaching.org and fill out the nomination form. Again, that's www.spiritofteaching.org. Also, please share, rate, and give some feedback to help us better serve you in the spirit of teaching. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to having you back next time on Teacher Tales.